1 Corinthians uh, 15 we're in tonight. What glorious words that we can sing. Truths that we can confess. And a hope that believers in Christ can have. It is marvelous, is it not? It might work. Maybe you can hear me a little better. Yeah, that's fine. Right. Okay, thank you. For those of you who don't know me, I am uh, the proud father of three kids. One just turned eight. One just turned five, but thinks she's eight. <laughs> and one is two. And one, well, I guess I should, four children. One's on the way. So, yes, thank you very much for that. Um, all my kids, they love to ask me questions. They're full of questions for a good old dad. But uh, these questions are never the kinds of questions that I want to answer. <laughs> dad, are we there yet? <laughs> dad, can you stop reading now? <laughs> I would love to answer questions like, Dad, what was the roster of the 1998 Vikings football team? I would love to answer that question. They're never asking me that question. I would love to answer the question, hey, who are my favorite youth pastors? They're all right here, including John Doobie in the back. They never ask me that question. They always ask me questions. But the, the favorite question that they ask me is, is the shortest one. Why? <laughs> Kids, put on your shoes. Get in the van. I speak this calmly to them. Get in the van. We're going to leave now. We're going to go to church. Why? <laughs> Kids, put on your pajamas. Brush your teeth. Why? <laughs> I mean, they, they're really struggling with with the reason for everything. And kids love to ask questions. And sometimes those questions are, are, are motivated by more of a curiosity than a disobedience. But sometimes it's a disobedience. And, and honestly, how I answer those questions depends on what kind of a why question they're asking me. Right? Tonight we have a why question. And you can approach it one of two ways. You can approach it with unbelief. And you can say, why? Why does that matter? Or you can approach and ask this question in your heart with a heart full of faith and say, why does this matter? Help me to worship Jesus. Help me to dig my hands into these truths that we're going to be studying this weekend. There's, there's two ways you can ask a why question tonight. And I hope and pray it's the second. We're going to ask this question. Why are we talking about the resurrection this week? Why does this truth matter in your life? We're going to be covering this truth all sorts of different ways. But tonight I just want to answer that simple question. Why? The Apostle Paul answers it really well. And you see it there in 1 Corinthians uh, 15. And beginning in verse 12... Paul writes this to the Corinthian church. Now, if Christ 
is proclaimed as raised from the dead. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because he has testified. Because we have testified that God, he has raised Christ. Whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, I I pray for this time. I pray that our hearts and minds would be ready and eager to hear the answer of why this truth matters. Pray that you'd open up our hearts to see wondrous things from your word even this night. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Paul was writing a letter of correction to a church that was immature. They had been they had been founded by the apostle Paul, but lately they had begin be, become to look more like the world around them than the word of God that they possessed. They were being influenced by the thoughts and the truths and the passions and the worldviews of the culture around them. And this should be a cautionary tale to all of us. You will be and you will become who you want to be. You will become who you look up to and you admire. You will begin to take on their characteristics in life. And this is the truth of the Corinthian church. They were a church in need of correction. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes them a needed letter of correction. He corrects their confusion over... um, a multitude of questions. And if you read the letter, all throughout the letter, you keep seeing this phrase again and again and again. Now concerning this issue, now concerning this issue, now concerning this issue. See, what happened was they, they had all these questions in their church and, and in their body and in their fellowship. They were confused about a lot of things practically and theologically. Because, why? Well, because they had, they had, they had started to look like the, the world around them, and that led to confusion in their lives. And, and because of this confusion, they, they wrote a letter to the Apostle Paul. And, and they sent this letter with a group of people that also gave Paul the inside scoop on other things that were going on in the Corinthian church. And so Paul now writes this letter from the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, to correct the misunderstandings, confusion 
that had caused so much chaos in the life of these believers. And his letter is inspired for you as well to help you think clearer about your world and your life and the church that you are a part of. And we see here, particularly in chapter 15, Paul writes to them because they are very confused about a doctrinal issue called resurrection. And you see there in verse 12 of your Bibles that it's some of you are proclaiming that Christ is not raised, or sorry, that there is no resurrection from the dead. Now, you, you, you can read that very carefully and say, it might not have been that they were saying that Christ wasn't raised from the dead, but they were saying there is no resurrection of the dead. There, there is no future hope for believers of resurrection from the dead. Now, now why would someone want to believe in this? And for this, you kind of need to step back in time a little bit and understand kind of the worldview that they were, they were in and the culture that they were surrounded by. In, in those days, there were, there were these, these teachings, particularly in, in Greek philosophy, that, that celebrated the spiritual and that downplayed and degraded the physical. So the body was considered bad in some ways or pointless in some ways. Some people say, hey, what you do in the body doesn't matter. But the, the spiritual part of you, the soul, that is what matters. And, and some people, perhaps some Corinthian believers we see here, we're trying to fit into the culture by saying, well, we don't really believe in an actual physical resurrection of the dead. We don't believe that. We're, we're sophisticated. We're like you. Maybe they were trying to, in their mind, kind of reach the culture by kind of smoothing out the, the harder edges of the gospel message. We feel that temptation all the time. There's some amazing, there's some amazing things that the, the culture believed in, and, and obviously this gets into a lot of background issues, but some people were, were so excited about the spiritual over the physical that they deliberately request that their bodies would be burned, cremated when they died, so that they could, they could, they could, they could show that they were no longer a part of that body, and now their spirit was liberated. This was the culture that the Corinthian church was in. And, and Paul now writes to correct this misunderstanding. And we're going we're gonna to kind of jump in and out of this chapter. You're going to be in this chapter throughout your devotions. Tomorrow morning, Spencer's going to lead us through the beginning of this chapter. Paul, Paul addresses this area, this area and this issue of resurrection from multiple different ways. But right here in verse 12, all the way through 19, he gives us a few why the resurrection matter truths. Essentially, what Paul is going to say in this section is, if there is no resurrection of the dead, the gospel is nothing. You have nothing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there is no resurrection of the dead, you are, he says it, pitiful. You are liars. Christ is nothing. So getting the resurrection of the dead is very important. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write down these four devastating results of holding to no resurrection. And essentially what we're talking about is here, why this matters. Four devastating results if there is no resurrection. If there's no truth in the resurrection. Read verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, 
then not even Christ has been raised. Uh, Devastating result. Number one, if there's no resurrection of the dead, you have no risen Savior. This intellectual snobbery that Paul's addressing will, will actually destroy the very heart of the gospel. You'll have no Savior. Uh, you'll, you'll say Christ is still in the tomb. In, in the end, he is nothing. He's not raised at all. But notice the language that Paul uses to refer to Christ. Christ has been raised at the end of verse 13. Raised, this is a particular verb that emphasizes the continual result. Christ is now risen. Past action with continual results. Now, now listen to this. Our hope in the resurrection is not based in how we feel in the morning or in the night or in any given day of our life. Our hope in the resurrection is based in our powerful union with Christ. If we have no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. That's what Paul's going to say. We see this all throughout the New Testament as well. There is, a, there is a powerful causal connection between what happens to Christ and what happens to you if you are a believer. Galatians 2.20 says this. Paul says this. I have been crucified with Christ. When Christ is crucified, your union with him means you are also, in some spiritual union way, also crucified with him. That being your sins, that being the judgment you deserve. Paul says this in Romans 6.4, We have been buried with Christ. And then Paul says in Romans 6.5, We will also then certainly be united with Christ in a life like his as well. And the logic that Paul is trying to demonstrate here is Christ's life, death, resurrection empowers the believer's assurance for their own. See how it's connected to the gospel? Everything you have that's a blessed thing to you in the gospel comes because you are in Christ. You see those words all throughout your Bible. In Christ. In Christ, my sin is paid. In Christ, I am buried and dead and separated from my sin. In Christ, I am raised again to newness of life. Everything you have is in Christ and in union with Christ. Matter of fact, let me just read to you Romans 6. Romans 6 verse 8 says this. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Look at those truths. Look at those blessed truths of assurance in your life. We have died. We also believe that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. We will never be condemned again for our sins. And death no longer has dominion over him. And in him, death no longer has dominion over us either. We do not fear it in Christ. Christ. 
This is our powerful union with Christ. And, and my essential application to you in that point is simply this. Be eager. Be eager for what we're about to learn this week. And particularly, be eager for the assurance that can be found in the truth of the resurrection that we're going to talk about on Wednesday morning. But let's look at our next devastating consequence, our next devastating result. If Christ, if there is no resurrection, if believers have no hope of resurrection, secondly, your faith is empty of truth. You see this in verse 14. If Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith, even, is in vain. Uh, The logic, again, here of what Paul is saying is, uh, the message that we preach and the truth of uh, the gospel that Christians hold dear are richly historical things. And if there is no resurrection... Our, our, our faith is devoid, empty of truth. We, we, live, in, we, we live in hopes. We, we, we live in uh, desires that we don't know if they'll be satisfied or not. We, we have no historical purchase in our faith. But the Christian faith actually has incredible historical purchase. It has incredible historical truths to back it up. Christ's whole life is a significant historical event from beginning to end. As a matter of fact, if you look here early on in this chapter, you'll see that Paul records all of these eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. And he, he points it out that, that more than 500 in verse 6 have witnessed the resurrected Christ. And, and he even says, most of whom are still alive. And the, the, the idea behind that is you can go ask them yourself. Our truth is full, uh, our faith is full of truth. But if Christ has not been raised, if, if there, there's no such thing as the resurrection, then your, your faith is in vain, he says. It's without underlining truth. It's without support. It's without basis. It's just a bunch of hot air. That's all it is. And even worse here, he he seems to suggest that we who have spoken the truth to you are intentionally deceiving you. Verse 15, we are false witnesses of God. In World War II, the the D-Day landings were successful for many different reasons. But one of my favorite reasons was because the Allies had convinced Adolf Hitler that the invasions would actually be occurring north of Normandy. Hitler was so convinced that the invasions were coming in a different location. When the Allies actually landed on the beaches of Normandy, Hitler actually refused to move his panzer tanks, the, the, the big tanks that, would, that, that all the Allies were afraid of, he, he refused to even move them into action for the first little bit of the battle. Why? Because he was convinced that the Allies would actually be landing north of their current position. Why was Hitler convinced? Well, because from 30,000 feet above England, Hitler's spy planes had seen a massive buildup of tanks 
and 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 evidences of troops and and tank tank tracks and and all of this evidence of a massive invasion unit in the northern part of England. But in reality, if you were to get close to that massive invasion force, it was actually nothing more than air. It was inflatable tanks. And now, today it wouldn't have worked, right? They've got all of these things where they can actually see, you know, heat sensors and things like that. Hey, there's no troops here. Uh, Hey, this is actually just a tank because we can actually, with satellite power, see a postage stamp on the ground. But back then, from 30,000 feet, it looked like a massive army was preparing to launch. He was convinced by truth that was merely just inflation. Merely just inflation. Now, once again here, the the logic here that Paul is going to talk to us about is essentially that same thing. If if you can't believe in the, the resurrection, there is nothing in the Bible that you can believe. You have no hold on truth in your life. Because... God is a distrustful God. The people who write the Word of God are distrustful people. And and the the, the Bible is not shy about its belief in the resurrection. If, If Christ has not been raised, if there is no hope of the resurrection, your whole Bible goes out the window. You can't trust anything. You can't trust anything. And the thing I really want you to take away from this is be eager for this week. Be eager to saturate your mind and your heart in the truth of God's Word. And be eager to see the rich historical footing that our faith has. Here's another another disastrous result if there is no resurrection. Number three, you are powerless in sin. If there is no hope of the resurrection, if Christ has not been raised, you, my friend, are powerless in your sin. Your condition is hopeless. Your situation is weak. See that word there in verse 17. Futile. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. That's a word that means powerless, weak. Without the resurrection, your faith has no strength. If you are not in Christ, and there is no resurrection, there is only one remaining conclusion about your situation. And that is that you are in sin. You're under the judgment of sin. You're under the condemnation of sin. And and the Bible says much about sin's predicament. And if there is no hope in Christ Jesus, your situation is most bleak. Just a a splattering of examples. I'm going to give you just a a few P words. A few P words because sin means pain. So a few P words about what the Bible says about you under sin. Number one, you are under sin's predicament. David, Old Testament David, an Old Testament saint said this in Psalm 51.5, and he couldn't deny it. I was brought forth in iniquity, in sin my mother conceived me. And Paul in the New Testament in Ephesians 2.3 was not much better. He says, we are by nature children of wrath. We're in a predicament. 
From the very beginning, we are in a predicament of being under sin. Romans 5, 3-11 through 11 says this, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one is good, no, not one. We are all under sin. That means we start as sinners. We start in sin's predicament, condition. Romans 5, 12 even says this, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. You could say it like this, Everyone in this world has a bad inheritance following them around. And it's because we are born in Adam. All receive the worst inheritance possible because we are all sons and daughters of Adam. And when he sinned, death spread to all men. All men sinned. Here's another P word for you. You are also under not only sin's predicament, but you're also under sin's power. It says this, especially in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 says... We are spiritually dead. We are walking around under the lordship of sin. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says we are dead, we are walking, we are following even the prince of the power of the air. That is the devil. People naturally, therefore, follow the wisdom of this world because they are under sin's predicament. Uh, you're naturally more inclined to believe what the newspaper says than what God's Word says. You're naturally more inclined to believe and be influenced by an influencer online than you are over what God's Word says. Because you are under sin's power. You are following the same power that they're following. But the Bible actually says it's worse. Not only you're in sin's predicament, you're under sin's power, you're, you're also culpable, you're under sin's passions. You could say it this way, you are born a natural wanter. You want sin. Ephesians 2.3 says this, In the passions of the flesh we are, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. That's, that's who we are in the passions of the flesh. Matter of fact, it says in John 1.11-13, like Christ came to His own and His own did not receive Him. It didn't matter, it didn't matter who you were or how you were born. You do not naturally go to Christ because your passions are at war with another Lord than yourselves. You are also under, this is a tricky one, sin's partition. Essentially what I'm trying to say here is sin causes a separation between all relationships in your life. Sin separates you, number one, from God and His holiness. Matter of fact, God separates from Himself sinners. Uh, in Ephesians 2, 13, it talks about there being this, this inability for anyone to draw near to God. But sin also separates us from each other. You ever notice that your, your relationships in life naturally go sideways and are difficult to maintain? 
And unless you're honest and humble, you'll probably lose those relationships. We, we naturally have sin that separates us from people after a while. Matter of fact, Ephesians 2 talks about um, an ethnocentrism that separates all mankind. There's this wall of hostility that divides humanity. But we're also separated even by ourselves from God, right? God separates himself from us. We separate ourselves from each other. But there also is some truth to the sense that we naturally want to be away from a holy and righteous God. Sin separates you from the very being you were made, you were created to be in relationship with. And and we see this all throughout the Bible. Whenever a sinner encounters Jesus who refuses to humble their hearts to who they are and who Jesus is, what do they want to do? They want Jesus away from them. And it's most bleak when you see demons in the New Testament and the Gospel. They want to be away from Jesus. Sin causes us to want to be separated from a holy God. Matter of fact, C.S. Lewis would illustrate it this way. He would say that hell is barred from the inside. The sinners in hell are terrified of God because God's presence brings judgment and wrath. And we in our sin want to be separated from this God. The more you get to know this God, if you remain in your sin and are not in Christ, the more you want to be away from Him. But you are also under sin's penalty. And this is, this is what that partition is resulting from, sin's penalty. Ephesians 2, 3 says we are children of wrath. That might be very strong language to say children destined for wrath. Children belonging to judgment and wrath. Colossians 3, 6 says, on on all of the children of men, wrath is coming. We are all in our sin, under sin's penalty. And it even says in Romans 1, verse 8, that the penalty has already started. The judgment of God has already begun, as God gives us up to the desires of our hearts and to the idols of our hearts. God's judgment is already on display. But there's one more thing. You are also under sin's payment plan. You are about to accept an inheritance for all of the sin in your life, and you cannot escape it. Sin is going to pay you the wages that you are due. Uh, Romans 6.23 says this, uh, The wages of sin is death. So there you have it. We're under sin's predicament. We're under sin's power. We're under sin's passion. We're under sin's partition. We're under sin's penalty. And we have a payment plan that is coming for us in the judgment of God. What is the evidence that you are in sin? The evidence that all people are in sin is B, is because all people die. That is, that is the evidence that you are in sin. That is what Romans 6.23 even says, right? Death is the sign that there is sin. But, but what's, the, what's the proof, what's the evidence that there is salvation? The exact opposite. 
if, if death is the proof of sin, resurrection is the proof, beloved, of salvation. That is why the gospel message is rooted. It must have the truth of the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, there is no salvation. Because death is the wages of sin. Without resurrection hope, you are still under your sin, Paul says. But with resurrection hope, you have hope of victory, hope of justification, as Paul would say in Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Uh, Christ's resurrection is the demonstration of His victory and the victory of all who are in Him. Christ's resurrection is your hope over death. And the simple application I have for you tonight is be eager. Be eager to learn about resurrection and to make resurrection your own. Be eager to listen to Pastor Chris's message tomorrow night on the truth of the resurrection. Let's go to our our final devastating result, our final devastating consequence, if there is no resurrection. As you recall, number one, you have no risen Savior. Number two, your faith is empty of truth. Number three, you remain powerless in your sin. But number four, devastating result, you are and you ought to be the most miserable of people. If there is no hope of resurrection, you ought to be most miserable. You should, if you do not believe in the hope of the resurrection, struggle with depression. You should struggle with anxiety. You should live in a life of defeat and despair and futility. You should, especially if you are following Christ, consider yourself the most pathetic people in the world because you have no hope. You are living a life that only exists for this life and has no hope beyond this life. You, You are putting your hope in something that is empty that looks nice and threatening from a distance, but when you get down on ground level, it is nothing but air. You are foregoing all the joy and all the passions that you could experience in this life for something that will give you no return in the next. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. If in Christ... We have hope only in this life. We are, of all people, most to be pitied. Why? Because we're miserable in this life and following Christ, but for no reason at all. Paul could almost be saying this, if there is no resurrection and hope of the resurrection of the dead, why did you even become a Christian? Being a Christian does not make your life easy now. It makes it hard now. Now, don't get me wrong. Being a Christian improves your life today like no other faith can. But ultimately, the truth of the gospel is a truth that is rooted in a hope that is eternal. 
You, you can endure the trials and difficulties of this life because your life is rooted in something that is beyond and above this world and this life. You follow Jesus and you hold fast to all of the promises He gives. Ultimately, your hope in the resurrection is what makes this life matter at all. Because all of this life has meaning now. Because what you do in this life matters. Because when you die, you will rise. The truth of the resurrection is not just for the believer. The truth of the resurrection is for all people. But the hope of the resurrection, the joy of the resurrection, the celebration of the resurrection, the victory over death in the resurrection is something that only the believer can hold. There is coming a day. Revelation 20 tells you all about it. When all people will be resurrected. But all people are resurrected into a new body, not so that they can enjoy heaven. But all who are not found in Christ are resurrected to a new body through which they can endure the eternal judgment of God. But the believer's faith, the believer's hope, is rooted in the truth of the gospel and celebrated in the glorious riches of the resurrection. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this moment in time. We pray that we would be urgent in how we hear this, be eager in how we listen to these messages, and be ready to learn, ready to apply. And I pray that we would also be honest about who we are. Are we in Christ or are we still in sin? I pray that you'd give us insight through conversations and through messages to understand this. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.